Well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 19? And if you're new with us, we are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, for those of you who have been coming for a while, as you have seen in previous studies, David has survived Absalom's attempt to overthrow and kill him. And even though Absalom died in battle and the revolution had officially ended, listen, David still remained in exile. You see, he refused to take back the throne by force. The only way he would come back to rule was if the people voluntarily invited him back to reign over them. And as time began to pass, the people began to realize this. They began to realize that David wasn't going to come back automatically. Uh, now that their illegitimate rebel king, Absalom, was gone, David wasn't going to come back automatically. They needed to humble themselves and to formally petition him to come back and take his place on the throne as king over their lives. Now, in the meantime, because Israel had no king, confusion reigned, and the people were divided as to what to do. So we pick the story up in verse 9. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed king over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Well, you see, the people weren't sure what to do. Some believed the right course of action was to bring David back. Others weren't sure because of what he might do to them for rebelling against him. I mean, would he forgive them or would he take vengeance on them as being traitors? Now, the question, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king, is significant. Some are trying to reason with the majority. They're, they're basically saying, look, you made, a, you made a big mistake in rejecting God's king to reign over your lives, but now you need to make it right by inviting the rightful king to come back and take his proper place on the throne. Doing nothing is unacceptable. The time has come to formally invite the king home. And I want you to hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. But uh, first, let's study the passage, then we'll make some application at the end. So verse 11, so King David sent to Zadok uh, and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? You see, when David got word that the ten northern tribes of Israel were talking about bringing him back as king, but his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, his flesh and blood relatives hadn't said anything about it, well, he was a little put off to say the least. So he sends Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, to the elders of Judah to ask them why they haven't invited him back yet. What was taking them so long? These were the guys, the elders of Judah, that 25 years earlier were the first to make David king over their tribe. And as such, David made Hebron, a city in Judah, uh, his capital. So why would they be the last ones now to invite him back as their king? Didn't seem to make sense to David. Well, I think the problem was that uh, since the tribe of Judah had heavily backed Absalom in the revolution, uh, there was doubtless a heavy dose of fear as to what David might do to them once he became king again. However, 
David seems to have anticipated their fears and told the priests to say to the elders of Judah, verse 13, You elders, look, you tell Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Now, Amasa was the cousin of Joab and the nephew of David. But also, Amasa had been Absalom's general in the rebellion, who led his armies against David's guys. By David replacing Joab with Amasa, it accomplished two things. First of all, it was a judgment upon Joab for disobeying a direct order from the king that he was to take Absalom alive. David had told his men, Joab being his general, he said, look, if at all possible, don't kill Absalom, take him alive. Well, that would have been very easy to do, as you remember, as Absalom's making his escape, his thick, luxurious hair gets tangled up in a low-hanging bough of a giant tree, and his donkey keeps going, and he's hanging there. Wouldn't have been any big deal for Joab to get his guys, cut him down, cut the hair off, and let's bring him back to the king. But Joab didn't like David's command. Joab thought he knew better what was best for the nation, so he killed Absalom. Joab was becoming more and more aggressive in his actions against David's commands. And when he executed Absalom, he crossed a line. I mean, this was the last straw. Uh, his rebellion was something David could no longer ignore, so he had to remove Joab as his commanding officer, as general. But secondly, guys, and more to the point, by appointing Amasa as his new general, it sent an instant message to all who had followed Absalom that they were being pardoned by David, that all was now forgiven, and the only thing that mattered was unity in the kingdom. Okay? I mean, what happened in the past, look, it's over. David was saying, you know, Amasa, you want, I want you to be my general. That sent an instant message to everybody who had followed Absalom that David is offering or extending a pardon to all. And really all the king wants now is just unity in the kingdom. Well, the effect was immediate and universal. Verse 14, so he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants, exclamation point. David, come on home. You're right. We, we want you back. And listen, I want you to understand, it was the promise of a full and unconditional pardon for crimes committed that motivated the rebels to make David their king once again. Hold on to that thought also. We'll come back to that as well. So verse 15. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimei, son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba the servant of the house of David and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. So guys, this is a day of great joy. As many people came out, thousands really, to escort the king across the Jordan and back to the royal city where he would once again reign over the nation as their rightful king. Now it's kind of interesting to me that as they escorted David across the Jordan and they stopped there, gathered in Gilgal for a while, that's significant to me because you remember from our studies in uh, the book of Joshua how that when Joshua led them, the children of Israel from the wilderness, 
as they were then crossed through the Jordan and into the Promised Land for the first time. Remember, they set up camp in a place they later named Gilgal. Gilgal. This became their base of operations. This became their headquarters from which they launched many attacks against the people of Canaan in taking the land according to God's promise. But one of the first things God instructed Joshua to do was to circumcise all the men. You see, this was the generation that was born and grew up in the wilderness. The ones that came out of Egypt, the adults, they wouldn't cross into the promised land. They were afraid of the giants, remember? So God says, well, now you're not going to cross over. You're going to wander for 40 years until this generation dies out. And your children, the ones you said I was going to lead into the promised land to kill, they will inherit that land. Except these men had not been circumcised in the wilderness. God promised Canaan to the descendants of Abraham by covenant. But the sign of the covenant was circumcision. So the fact was these men were really not part of the covenant people of God yet because they weren't circumcised. So he circumcised the men there. And there in Gilgal, they sanctified themselves. They got themselves ready for battle because it was very important that their hearts were right if they were going to be used by God to do his will. Uh, very important place. It was also many years later in Gilgal that we read in 1 Samuel 11, verses 14 to 15, that Samuel renewed the covenant uh, when Saul became king. He was king before David, of course. One commentator said, and he might be right, he said, and I quote, the text doesn't state it, but perhaps David also renewed the covenant at Gilgal and assured the people that the Lord was still on the throne and his word was still in force. Perhaps it was a time of rededication for the king, for throughout the rest of the book, we see David very much in charge, end quote. So it could be. Verse 18, Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and do what he thought was good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day when my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. Well, if you remember, guys, it was Shimei. He was the one who viciously cursed David when David left Jerusalem with his family, his servants, and his royal bodyguard. You remember how that when David got word that Absalom was now coming with his soldiers to overthrow David, David did not want the city of Jerusalem thrown into a bloodbath. He didn't want innocent people killed. They wanted David, no doubt. He was the only one Absalom really wanted to kill, but they would kill anybody that stood between uh, Absalom and David. So anybody who got in the way, David knew Absalom would spare no one. And David, being a shepherd and who had a heart for the sheep, he had a heart for his people there in Jerusalem. So he told his guys, let's, let's just withdraw. All right, let's just leave the city. Let Absalom take it. We'll regroup, figure out what God wants us to do. So that's what they did. So he's, he's left the city now, all right? And he's brokenhearted. His own son is the one trying to kill him. He's devastated. He doesn't know what the future is going to hold. Is God gonna, has God taken the kingdom away from me indefinitely? Or is this only for a time? Is God done with me? I don't know what's going to happen. The future was uncertain. And he was at a real low point in his life. And it was at this point in David's life that Shimei showed up to curse him. 
I'll just read it to you out of uh, 2 Samuel uh, 16, verses 5 to 8. As the king came to Baharim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, the son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. He said, get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. Well, that was all wrong, okay? The guy was totally wrong about everything he said. First of all, David didn't take the throne away from Saul. God gave it to David because Saul wouldn't obey the Lord. God put him in that position, Saul. Saul wouldn't be, wasn't faithful to God, so God said, I'm taking you out. And of course, David had nothing to do with the bloodshed that affected Saul's family. David tried to protect Saul's family, but they died. Saul and his, most of his sons died in battle. So he was wrong about that. He made a mistake. I mean, he was caught up in the moment. He was a of the family of Saul, and he was feeling like David had wrongly taken from the family of Saul, the kingdom, and so on. But now as David's come back, crosses the Jordan, one of the first people to meet him there is Shimei, who's confessing his sin to David and asking for forgiveness. However, that wasn't sitting well with one of David's commanding officers, verse 21. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. David said, Look, God has just brought me back as king of the nation." This, this has got to be a day of rejoicing, of reconciliation, forgiveness, and, and unity. I want this to be a time of rejoicing, not a time of revenge. And David was right. It was a time to put aside the sins of the past, to forgive those that had come against him. David was a wise king. He realized that it's over, and if the kingdom was ever going to be reunited, it had to happen right now, quickly. Otherwise, this division would grow more intense and the kingdom would be forever divided, which eventually happened under his son Solomon, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, guys, I'd like to end there. Not that we're done. I'd like to end there in our passage, okay? You, you know we're not done. <laughs> and I'd like to use the rest of our time this morning to focus on what I'm calling bringing back the king, which is the title of this message, bringing back the king. Now, as we've already seen, the passage deals with those in Israel who had rejected David's reign over their lives in favor of his son, Absalom. Of course, David was the rightful king, the one that God had placed on the throne. Absalom, well, he was a usurper, a rebel king who stole the hearts of the people of Israel through deception. Now, you remember how that worked. As he was planning his coup, uh, he was a patient man, Absalom. He took uh, several years, at least four. And while he was quietly gathering support, what he would do is he'd go down to Jerusalem and stand outside the main gate. Of course, the main gate was where people went through uh, if they had a case to bring to the courts because the main gate led into the main 
what they later called in the Greek culture the Agora, the, the main part of the town. And that's where City Hall was, basically. That's where cases were heard, the judges sat, and so on. So Absalom was waiting there by the, by the gates of Jerusalem. And anyone who came and started to go in, he would grab them by the arm and start to talk to them like he really cared about them. And, but, of course, they knew who he was, and they would bow because he was the king's son, a prince. And so they would uh, bow to him. But he would quickly raise them up, you know, give them a kiss on the cheek, as if to say to them, don't bow to me, I'm no better than you. This gave the people the sense that Absalom was, you know, one of them, a real man of the people. Further, he'd ask them, well, uh, do you have a, a court case today? Uh, what do you want to see the king uh, about? Is there a, a case that you've brought to the king? And they would explain the case that they had brought, were bringing to the king, and he'd listen, and then he said, look, you know, your case is righteous, but don't expect uh, any justice from my father, Okay. Um, his administration is not really what it should be kind of a thing. If I was king, I would make sure you got justice because your case is righteous. And so because of this, he didn't care about the people. He only wanted the people to get behind him so that he could be in charge, right? But we read in 2 Samuel 15, verse 6, through all this deception, it says, Absalom stole the hearts of all the men of Israel. Folks, our passage this morning contains the tale of two kings. The tale of two kings. One was the true king who had the right to reign, and the other who was a usurper to the throne, a rebel, someone who had no right to reign. And whether you realize it or not, as I just said, this is the story of humanity in general, and really our society in particular, because this is where we live. We see in our passage a picture of how many people in our society have rejected God's king to reign over their lives. God's king, of course, is none other than the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rightful king. He's God in human form, second person of the Trinity, who alone has the authority to rule over our lives, to lead our lives. Absalom, well, he represents the devil, who is a usurper, a rebel king, who through deception has stolen the hearts of many. You see, he, the devil, has deceived them into thinking that by following him with their lives, their lives are going to be better off and more fulfilling than if they make Jesus their king and follow what he wants them to do. It's interesting that even as Absalom was David's son, so the devil, or Lucifer, is called in the Bible a son of God. In fact, all the angels are called sons of God in Scripture. So it's interesting how that David's son rebelled against him to steal the throne, and Satan, a son of God, rebelled against the Lord to steal the throne of this world. Of course, it was in the Garden of Eden that Satan took the form of a serpent and deceived Eve into thinking that he and not God had her best interests at heart. You know, the devil's always trying to pass himself off as a man of the people, quote-unquote, a man of the people. He understands us. Now, of course, not everybody's a devil worshiper that doesn't follow Christ, although they don't realize that if you're not for Jesus, you're against him automatically. But they don't see them, many don't see themselves that way. But when they follow the philosophy of the devil, he's the God of this world. He's pumping the world full of his agenda, his thinking, uh, using all kinds of different ways to do that. The media is a big one, right? And so as he's pumping into people's minds his, uh, his godless agenda, as people follow uh, his philosophy of life, whether they know it or not, they're saying that 
he knows me better than God knows me. Because, you know what, the devil apparently knows what's best for me. Because if I will follow him, my life is going to be, as I'm living for my flesh and doing whatever I want, my life is happy, it's fulfilled. And, and the devil has really worked hard at deceiving people. Eve was no different. Um, he uh, really got her thinking that uh, the reason God uh, forbid them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because God was trying to keep something good from them, Adam and Eve. Uh, we know later that what the good he was kind of getting her to think God was keeping from them was Godhood. Remember he said, God knows in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll become like him. So you know what, Eve, God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because he knows you're going to become like him, a God. And God doesn't want the competition. God wants to keep you down. And so she looked at the tree, looked at the fruit, like any other tree. The fruit looked good to the eyes. It looked desirable, and so on and so forth. And so what Satan did was, by, by getting her to think a certain way, he turned her, and then later on Adam, into rebels. They ate the forbidden fruit, but the result was not godhood, blessing, blissfulness, you know, fulfillment. The result was just the opposite. They fell from perfection to a life of hardship, misery, sickness, and ultimately death. But I want you to see the bigger picture. God was their king. God was the one who ruled over their lives in the garden. And when they disobeyed God, I'm sure they didn't realize the full extent of the ramifications. But when they disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, they didn't realize a couple of very significant things happened. First of all, their loyalties... Uh, went from God Almighty as their king to now the devil who became their king, man's new master. And where God had given the earth over to man's control, now because of their disobedience, they had given it now over to the devil's control who now became the God of this world. I'm sure they didn't realize that when they did this thing, that not only did the enemy, the devil, a usurper, a rebel king become their king, but he became the king of all their descendants after them. For all of us are born with a fallen nature. We are all born rebels at heart. And whether we realize it or not, when we are born into this world, we are born under the dominion of the devil. And we start right away from the time we're young. You know, we, as we're listening to things, watching things on TV, everything is orchestrated by the devil to brainwash us into a certain way of thinking. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's why when you get saved, you've got to be unbrainwashed. Romans 12, Paul said, look, you've got to be renewed uh, in your mind. All right? You've got you to know what God's will is now. That you might not live any longer for the devil in the way he used to get you to think, but now you have to be conformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? By getting in the Word. By getting in the Word and finding out what God has said about certain things. And as you read God's Word and the Spirit of God works in your heart and you embrace what God has said, it begins to untangle the thoughts. It begins to, to free you from the brainwashing that the devil has uh, given to all of us. But, but let me just say this, okay? People today who are thinking that the devil is their friend. And you know that Satanism is really on the rise today, especially among young people. Really on the rise. Satan's cool, they think. Satan's cool, God is not cool, okay? Uh, you know, I mean, black masses on college universities are really popular because, again, the devil is cool, and the devil lets me do things. He tells me just to do whatever makes you feel happy. 
So the devil's my guy, they think. All right? The devil, he's, he's the guy I want to control my life. They don't realize that they have chosen a false king who is only using them. They're just pawns in his hand that he might use them to preach his message to others. You know, sin is fun. Drugs are cool. Satan, he's the guy. They don't realize that they are pawns in the devil's hands who is only using them. And when he uses them up, when he finishes using them, he will kill them whatever way he can. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And people get involved in the occult. They get involved in Satanism. And for a while, it's cool. It's fun. They have power. But eventually, the depression starts to set in. They're hearing the voices. They're taking the drugs to, to shut out the voices, the alcohol, until they finally self-destruct. Guys, this has been the story of the human race ever since. But in the Garden of Eden, man made a huge mistake. Thinking he knew better than God what was best, he rejected the king, the rightful king to reign over his life, and he embraced a false king, a rebel king, a usurper, who promised him everything and delivered nothing but misery, heartache, emptiness, and death. This is the lot the human race has been under ever since, the slaves of the devil. Paul told Timothy, a young pastor in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, that the people of this world have been taken prisoners by the devil. To the Ephesians, he wrote in chapter 2, that Satan, the spirit who is at work in the world right now, in the hearts of those living in rebellion against God, people don't realize they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. They don't realize. They think that they are living their life, man. They're just having a ball. And they're I don't want to become a Christian because you guys aren't free. You have to go to church. You have to read the Bible. You have to stay away from this and that. Guys, let me just say something. Before I knew Jesus and I had religion, I had to go to church. I had to keep the sacraments. I had to light the candles. Once I got saved, I didn't light the candles anymore and all that other stuff. I got to go to church. I got to read the Bible. I got to hang out with all you guys. It's a whole different heart, right? Because we're no longer the same people that we once were before we got saved. You know, people think, well, you have to do these things. No, I, this is what I want to do. I'm loving going to church. Instead, give me, you know, the Bible and, 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 uh, and some time to let me just study it. I'm in my glory. I'm in my glory. But there are many in this world that have embraced the devil as their king and... Um, they don't even know they've done it. They don't even know they've been taken captive. And if they continue in this slavery to the devil and die in their sins, well, the Bible says their fate will be that God will have to judge them in hell for eternity. So they have to, be, they have to get free from the devil's captivity. The problem is that Satan's slaves, as Satan's slaves, the people of this world don't realize because they don't even know they've been taken captive. But even if they do know, there's nothing they can do to be set free. They can't set themselves free. I mean, they're hopelessly enslaved to the devil, right? They, they're totally incapable of doing anything to set themselves free. So this was their predicament. On their way to hell, nothing they could do about it. You know, as the old saying goes, man had fallen and couldn't get up. That was it. You know, I've fallen and I can't get up. That was the testimony of the human race. And Paul lays it out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, how we were in this hopeless a helpless predicament. The slaves of Satan on our way to hell, there was nothing we could do about it. But then verse 4 of Ephesians 2, two words. But 
God. Those two words are two of the most blessed words in the Bible in the context in which they appear. Against the hopeless backdrop of man's sin and failure of the first three verses of Ephesians 2, Paul writes these words which I think are like rays of the sun piercing the blackness of a terrible storm but God. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, After lowering us deeper and deeper into the pit of hopelessness and despair by reminding us of our predicament, how that we were separated from God by Adam's sin, we were the slaves of the devil and doomed to spend eternity apart from God in hell, Paul suddenly takes us from the pit of despair and skyrockets us to the height of absolute joy by proclaiming, but God. God intervened. God came to our rescue, unquote. Yes, he did. And how did he rescue us? By sending his son to this world to fight the devil, to defeat the devil, and to set the captives free. Of course, that's the testimony of the entire Bible. Primarily the New Testament, right? Paul talks about it in Colossians 2. You can read about it. How that at the cross, Jesus vanquished the devil and his demons. He defeated them. He set the captives free. In other words, we no longer have to be the slaves of Satan. If we will receive Christ, he will set us free. Jesus Christ, the rightful king, defeated Satan, just like David, the rightful king of Israel, defeated Absalom. However, remember David wouldn't rule by force, but had to be invited voluntarily by the people of Israel to come back and reign over them. In other words, they needed to humble themselves and formally petition him to come back and take his place on the throne as king over their lives. And guys, listen to me, the same is true with Jesus. Even though he has officially defeated the usurper and won the battle, he won't rule by force. A person has to humble themselves, confess their sins, and petition, formally ask him to come and take up residence in their heart as king over their life. But let me just say this to you. Until the rightful king reigns in your heart, there will be chaos in your life. Just like Israel experienced chaos until they brought David back to come and reign once again. I think Redpath put it well. Alan Redpath, great man of God, he said, and I quote, The folly of their allegiance to Absalom was clear. It had brought only misery and confusion. They were on the wrong side. They had rejected their true king, and therefore the situation was full of unrest. And Well, that's the testimony of humanity in general. When people reject the true king, their life doesn't make sense. They try to make it make sense. They try to pursue all kinds of different ideologies and pursuits in the hopes of stumbling on the true meaning of life. But I'm telling you, only when Jesus is seated on the throne of your heart as your king will life have meaning, will life, you'll have peace, you'll understand what life's all about. Until then, there's nothing but chaos and confusion. And guys, that brings us then to the question I asked you to hold on to earlier. Why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Look, if you're a Christian here this morning and you've walked away from your king for a while for whatever reason, a lot of reasons people walk away from Jesus, you walked away from your king to live in rebellion against him for a while, to indulge your flesh, whatever. God is saying to you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Look, the time has come, right? 
to make it right and bring back Jesus to reign once again over your life. You know it's not going to, you're not going to have any peace until you do. Sin may bring some pleasure for a time, but the more you indulge in it, the more it robs you of your life. It's like the drug addict. Initially, the drugs make them feel kind of euphoric and happy and everything else, but the more they take it, the more in bondage they get. It just winds up sucking the life out of them. Or maybe you're a person here this morning who's never asked Jesus to be your king. If that's the case, then listen. The time has come for you to humble yourself, confess your sins, and receive him as your savior and king. But hear me, please. Doing nothing is unacceptable. Doing nothing is unacceptable. The time has come to formally invite the king home. And whatever that means to you, backslidden Christian, somebody who has never accepted Christ at all, the time has come. Why are you, what are you waiting for, basically? You know, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? It's time to bring the king back or the, invite the king to come in the first time. The time has come to make it right. What are you waiting for is the idea. Why are you putting this off? Oh, well, someday I'll, I'll get right with God. Someday I'll accept Jesus. And do you know how many someday's you have left? I mean... James says our lives are like a vapor. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. Today's the day of salvation. You hear his voice. This is the time to get it right with God. Oh, but you don't know how I've lived. I hear this a lot. Oh, pastor, you don't know what I've done. I, I don't think God wants me. Look, not only do I know he wants you, I know it because he's invited you. You can read Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, Revelation 22, around verse 17. Uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come. Let him drink the waters of life freely. I'm inviting everyone to come. I want everyone, see? You can imagine Jesus holding out those nailed, scarred hands, saying, I love you. I did the work. Come. I want to be your king. I want, I'm a good king. I'm a good shepherd. I'll never lead your life in the wrong paths. I'll always do what's best for you for eternity's sake. Come to me. I want to rule over your life, but I'm not going to force myself in. You have to invite me to come. And guys, I want you to understand one more thing. It was the promise of absolute unconditional forgiveness for crimes committed, listen, that motivated the rebels to make David their king once again. God is offering you absolute unconditional forgiveness for whatever you've done. I don't care how bad the sin is. I've heard testimonies of guys that were in prison that were hitmen, that killed people for a living, and they received Christ and were forgiven. There is no sin so great that God's love and forgiveness is not greater still. As Paul said, you know, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. There's always plenty of grace to forgive whatever you've done if you come to Jesus and repent. If David represents Jesus and Absalom represents Satan, and listen to me, Shimei represents the rest of us, fallen mankind. He once cursed and forsook David to follow Absalom. Well, that's the testimony of all of us before we got saved. Maybe we didn't curse Jesus, but by our lives we sure didn't honor him. He cursed at one time David, forsook him to follow Absalom, only to realize at one point he had made a terrible mistake. 
I mean, there's no doubt from the law, Exodus 22, verse 28, that Shimei deserved to die. He had cursed God's anointed. God forbid that. Shimei was worthy of death. He wasn't disputing that. He knew he was worthy of death. He wasn't asking for justice. He was asking for what? Mercy. Mercy. And so he comes, pleading for mercy, and he repented before the king. And I tell you what, I believe his repentance was genuine because it seems the Holy Spirit is holding him up as an example of genuine repentance. Let me give you these quickly. His repentance was, first of all, humble. It says in verse 18, he fell down before the king. That was a posture of humility. You fell on your face before a superior being, a king, governor, or in this case, for the sinner, Jesus Christ. So his repentance was humble. God doesn't save the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His repentance honored the king. Verse 19, he said, Do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me. He understood and he acknowledged that, David, you have the, the authority to pronounce me guilty and execute me. I am not denying your authority, your right. He honored the king by, by acknowledging that David had the right to execute him. But again, he wasn't asking for justice, asking for mercy. Number three, his repentance was honest. Verse 19, I have sinned. This is a big one. He made no attempt to justify his actions or make excuses for himself. There were no strings attached. He didn't say, I have sinned, but you know, it wasn't really my fault. Uh, or everyone's doing it. You know. No, I have sinned. And number four, and finally, Shemai's repentance produced action. Verse 20, here I am. The first to what? Come to you today is what he's saying. Of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the King. David, I'm the first of my family to come to you. That's what repentance is, guys. Turning from your sin and coming to the Lord. Asking for mercy, which of course you know he will give to you because he's promised that any who come with a heart of repentance will receive forgiveness. What did David do? Verse 23, David responded to uh, Shammai's repentance with mercy. David said, you shall not die. You shall not die. Anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done, if you will repent, if you humble yourself, honor the king, be honest, and, and do something. Not just feel sorry about what you've done and say a lot of words, but you will turn and come to him he will show you mercy. I'll end with the words of Charles Spurgeon, who said, and I quote, Perhaps you have been like Shimei, who cursed King David, and you are afraid that Jesus will never forgive you. But David forgave Shimei, and Jesus is ready to forgive you. He delights in mercy. I do believe that the harps of heaven never give to Christ such happiness as he has when he forgives the ungodly and says to them, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Amen. That's the gospel. Okay? So, bringing back the king. Wow. How many of God's people need to bring back the king because they have wandered away um, and gotten into all kinds of sins? So, may God give us the grace to stay close to the king, all right? Loyal to him. But if you have stumbled, if you have walked away, there's forgiveness. And for anyone here this morning who has never received Christ as your Savior and King, this is the day. This is the day. Come on up afterwards so we can pray with you. If you need a Bible, we'll give you one. 
this is the first day, it could be the first day of the rest of your life. Your life will not, if you would have told me, you know, when I was like going to high school that someday I'd be a pastor, I would have said, you're smoking something. I don't know what you're smoking or drinking, but that's no way that's happening. But you know, you give your heart to Jesus, everything changes. And now I couldn't imagine doing anything but what I'm doing for him because that's the heart he's given me. So he'll give you the heart, a heart too, to serve him and to follow him and to be used by him. But today it has to start with repentance and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Father, all that you've placed here for our learning today. And Lord, give us grace that we would walk closely with you, that we would never, ever be taken in by the devil's lies and ever follow him in anything he wants us to do, but to stay loyal to you, Lord, and to obey you as our king. And we just thank you, Lord, and ask that anyone who has wandered away, you'd bring them back right now. That, uh, you know, if they will come to you, all is forgiven. You don't hold their sins against them. It's a brand new day. And to those who have never received you, Lord, touch their heart, open their eyes. Cause them to realize how much you love them. All you've done in dying for them, that their sins might be forgiven. Lord, touch their hearts and bring them to you right now. For we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.